0: This morning's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 26, verses 17 to 19, and then verses 26 to 30. You can find that on page 832 in the Red Bible underneath your seat. Matthew 26... 17 to 19, and then 26 to 30. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said to them, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day, when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again.
1: Um, in case there's anyone that, that, that doesn't uh, know me, I'm, I'm Mike, I'm one of the elders here at Trinity. That's uh, good to be with you this morning. So we're, we're continuing on in the Gospel of Matthew, we're looking at the the final moments before Jesus' death, so we are, we're within 24 hours. We've been sort of in the, the week of Jesus' death for, for some time now, ever, ever since about uh, the end of October, um, but now we're finally coming to to the, uh, the last 24 hours, the 24 hours leading up to his death, and we arrive at what's called the Last Supper, the Last Supper. So regardless of whether you've grown up in a Christian upbringing, you probably are very familiar with the Last Supper, and probably, you're, you're probably familiar with it. Because of this painting, because of uh, Da Vinci's Last Supper. Some of you here might even be in that boat where it's like, hmm, looks like someone's missing Mary Magdalene, because you're really into the Da Vinci Code and don't check your sources very often. That's all right. We can talk about that another time. But very famous painting, obviously, you know, responsible for, um, for doing a ton in the, in the world of art, rightfully iconic. And it's probably what comes to mind for, for many people when they think about the, the Last Supper. Now, there's lots of reasons why the Last Supper has, has stuck, with it, stuck with us, why it's compelling to, to even many folks who do not identify as Christians. Um, you know, the Last Supper just has this kind of force for a lot of different reasons. I mean, there's the, the sort of tension between Jesus and Judas that, that's, you know, very palpable in, in, in the scene we talked about last, that last week. There's, there's also the, the, just the bitterness and, and yet also tenderness of this being Jesus' last... Supper. I mean, it's, it's his last supper with the disciples. And so th- there's, there's this kind of tenderness and, and bitterness that, that goes wi- with the last supper. It's Jesus on the night he he's betrayed. But probably the reason why the last supper looms so large in, in, in the minds of, of, of most Christians is because it's at the last supper that Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, or what we, what we also call communion or, or Eucharist. It's, it's where Jesus gives us sort of this, one, one of the two central rituals of the Christian faith. The Lord's Supper and, and Communion are sort of our, our two sacraments or ordinances, depending on what you want to call them. But they're the, the two central rituals in the Christian faith. And so it's at the Last Supper that we get the Lord's Supper. And basically from the beginning of the church, Christians would, would come together for worship, and their time in worship would include uh, the word, it, it include the teaching of the word, it include song, and it would include, it would sort of actually climax with the Lord's Supper. So it was the way that, that the early church responded to the word of God. Their, their response was to receive the gospel by receiving the Lord's Supper. So it's always been a staple of Christian worship. In fact, this is really fascinating. I want to share this with you. So this is a quote by Pliny the Younger. Pliny the Younger was a governor, a Roman governor. And he was tasked with sort of investigating this new-fangled Christian movement. At that time, it probably would have been called the Way or or the Followers of of Christ or or whatever. But he he was tasked with kind of researching this early uh, Messianic Jewish sect. Uh, And already, the the, the Christians were not popular. They'd undergone one persecution under the the Roman Emperor Nero. And now this is 112 A.D. is probably when Pliny wrote this letter. And he's reporting on, on what he's finding among the Christians and the fact that it's like, these guys don't seem as bad as you told me that they might be, or uh, as bad as the rumors showed. And what, what cracks me up about this letter is at the end of, of this little phrase, he, he's describing their worship, and at the end he says, you know, after their worship, they tend to separate, and then they reassemble to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind. So why would he feel that it's necessary... To qualify that the food they're eating is ordinary and, and innocent. It's because there were rumors going around that Christians were cannibals. Because Christians, as insiders, would be talking about the blood of, of Christ that they drank and the body of Christ that they ate. And there were people who were not very charitable toward Christians to begin with and, and kind of antagonistic who heard that and was like, my goodness they're cannibals. And so Pliny goes and researches and has to tell the Emperor Trajan that, yeah, I mean, they eat, but it's like normal food. <laughs> you know? It's like bread and wine. It's, in it. it's fine. You know, they're not, they're not eating bodies. So it's just kind of an interesting thing, but it just shows how early on this, this practice was taken up by Christians. This goes all the way back to the beginning. Interestingly enough, um, This is 112 AD. There's lots of folk who say that the Christian movement only started seeing Jesus as as God in 325 with the Council of Nicaea. First line, they were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light when they sang an alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God. Oops. It turns out that from the very beginning, the Christian movement has always seen Christ as as Yahweh in the flesh. Um, And so that's kind of a cool little detail that you get out of uh, this letter as well. In any case, so Christians from the very beginning have been coming together to practice the Lord's Supper. Now, that doesn't mean that there hasn't been controversy around the Lord's Supper. Uh, there's a one-liner that says that the Lord's Supper is a symbol of unity that has divided Christians for 2,000 years. And I, I, that's, that's kind of been true. If you're unfamiliar with, with the controversy, if you're, if you're new to, to Christianity, basically, the, like, like you heard Everett read, Jesus takes up the elements and he says, this is my body, this is my blood. And so there's a, a controversy about how, how literally he meant those words, right? So how, how literal are we to take the is in that sentence when he says this is my body, this is my blood? So I, I'm not going to get into this debate much today. I, I think, you know, I, I got to give a little bit of a lay of the land, but that's really just to sort of get it out of the way so we can look at the text. And I'm not doing that because I think the, the debate is unimportant. I think it, it is an important debate, and you ought to think through it and, and decide where, where you stand. So I'm just going to give sort of a layover country kind of, or a flyover country sort of view of of the debate, and then I'm, I'm not really going to treat the topic much. So it's going to be a teaser, and then I'll, there will be no follow-up. But you, as an individual, can, can approach me, or one of the elders, or, or folks that, that, you, that you trust, and, and and hash it out further, I encourage you to do that, because again, I don't think it's an unimportant debate. But basically, there's there's three views that I'll sort of highlight. The one is, is often called the symbolic, or the memorial view of the Lord's Supper. Basically just what it sounds like. The the, the elements are not literally Jesus' body and blood. They're just bread or crackers and, and fruit of the vine, that's it. But it's a deep symbol, a symbol that hits us uh, at an incredibly intuitive level, like all great symbols do. It's a bottomless symbol. I mean, just gives re- rewards constant meaning the more you contemplate it. Um, but at the end of the day, a symbol. The next view is is often called the real presence view. And, and it's, it's probably not totally accurate to say just real presence view. There's real presence views. There's lots of different ways that this has been articulated. But at the end of the day, what this one comes down to is... Yes, the elements are just bread and, and, and wine, crackers, grape juice. That, that's what they are physically. But through those physical things, God does something very significant. So as we are taking in drink, take, taking in food, our bodies are nourished. And in the same way, through that, that sort of physical nourishing, we are spiritually nourished in Christ. So Christ is, is present in the elements in that God is, is using the elements to nourish us spiritually. So this would have been the view of John Calvin, uh, who, who's, whose theology has greatly influenced many of us here, um, as well as a number of other guys that have articulated it in, in different ways. But it's, it's a, a sacramental view. I, I know I'm throwing phrases out there. It's okay if, if some of these are going to... Over your heads for, for now, like, um, but that would be a way of describing it. It's kind of a sacramental view. It just means that there's there's something visible that's communicating an invisible reality. So that's sort of the, the real presence views. The the one that, that causes the most controversy uh, is is, or at least for for the, the one that, that Protestants and uh, and others tend to go back and forth on is the view that's called transubstantiation. Huge word. Transubstantiation, this is the position taken by the the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, Transubstantiation literally means the the changing of the substance. The changing of the substance. Uh, It was articulated uh, with the most specificity in like the 1200s, um, 1200 or 12th century, anyway, Thomas Aquinas. So to describe transubstantiation, what, what Roman Catholic theologians went on to do is they would use some of the vocabulary of Aristotle. So they would say that, the elements, they appear the same, right? So the accidents, that's Aristotle's word, the accidents of the elements are the same. You're, you're going to look at bread. The bread's going to taste like bread. The wine will still stain your teeth. All the accidents remain the same, but the substance has changed. So what they actually are, not what they just appear to be, what they appear to be is no longer the same as what they are. They have now been changed into the literal body and blood of Jesus. And so what what they're arguing is that that we are literally not figuratively, that there is a, a literal eating of the body and blood of of Jesus that he that he offers to us once again through communion and so what you know what you get from from transubstantiation from this particular view, you, you end up getting into kind of some interesting theologies because of it, so for instance, there's this idea that when the priest says the words of institution, when he says this is." my body, this is my blood, and he quotes Christ, and he, he you know, pours the, the water into the, the cup of wine to dilute it. Um, that At that moment, the priest is offering Jesus up again. So the, the sacrifice of Christ is sort of re-presented to the, the congregation, and, and it's at that moment that the elements are sort of changed, and, and then folks eat the literal body and blood of Christ. So I'm only going to comment very briefly on this last one. Um, if you've ever talked to someone who holds to transubstantiation, and again, if, if you do, I, I absolutely am not trying to be alienating at all, but I just want to, you know, honestly present information. It, it, typically what they'll do is they'll, they'll defend their position by referring to the church fathers. They'll say that the church fathers, they all held to the view of transubstantiation, and since all the church fathers were unanimous, it must be the true tradition uh, therefore transubstantiation. And oftentimes what they'll do is they'll say, see, that the fathers all believed this, and then they'll point to a, a piece of writing in one of the church fathers where they say the bread is the body of Christ, the, the blood is or the, the, the wine is the blood of Christ. And they'll say, see? Transubstantiation. Where it's like, well all the views say that. All the views say that that the bread is the body and the cup is, is the blood. All, like the memorial real presence, all of them do that's not what this is about it's about what do we mean when we say that and so you end up having to read the context and what it turns out is that the church fathers were not at all unanimous about this there was enormous disagreement about them you had guys about this this whole concept so you had guys like tertullian and theodoret who held to the symbolic view uh, you have guys that maybe held to transubstantiation. It's hard to tell because they weren't using the language of Aristotle. So they're not going to use the language of Aristotle to describe it. If this is so nerdy, I'm so sorry about how nerdy this is getting. It's going like, to be it's like there's probably 10% of you who are like just super engaged. And then the, everybody else is just utterly checked out. I'm almost done. so So they're not using the language of Aristotle. And so... It's hard to tell if they believe in transubstantiation or not for a good bulk of them. Um, What it comes down to is that most of them held to some form of real presence. That's what most of them held to. In fact, most of them probably split the difference between the symbolic view and the real presence view. That was Augustine's position. It was the the position of most of the church fathers. They were kind of splitting the difference between the symbolic and the the real presence view. Um, So... Obviously, i spent some time laying out the debate, and if you've been a Christian for a long time, you've probably been exposed to a little bit of this already. I just say all this to sort of tip my cap to, to all the arguments that have taken place. Again, I don't think that this debate is unimportant, but at the end of the day, I think we get so, when we approach this text, like when we read this text in our Bibles, we are so fixated on the Lord's Supper that we don't really pay attention to the Last Supper, So before we can even have a conversation about the Lord's Supper, we have to have a conversation about the Last Supper. Does that make sense? We have to approach the text with with the whole debate kind of set to the side for a second and just get the force of how this this is actually coming to us. I don't think Matthew had it in his head to be like this passage, is. I'm going to include this passage in my gospel to, to, to you know, contribute something to a future debate that will only really get going 1,200 years from now. (laughs) That probably wasn't it. Like, he probably wasn't thinking that way. Instead, he's putting the the Last Supper in here, yes, to describe why we do the Lord's Supper, that's part of it, but then also just to, 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 to do something even more. This moment is Matthew's atonement theology. This whole gospel, Jesus has been saying he's going to die, he's going to die, he's going to die. And there's this constant question, why? Why are you going to die, Lord? Why do you have to? What purpose is this going to serve? This is where we get an answer. And so if we are too caught up in the debate, we're going to just miss it, that this is where we get the answer. This is Matthew's atonement theology. Is Jesus illustrating what his death is for. Before he's betrayed, before he's denied, before he's tried, before he bends to the lash, before he's slain, Jesus gives us this bread and this cup. The bread and the cup are here to remind us of something. He gives us this bread and this cup so that we will not forget so that we will remain firmly grounded in this fact, Christ died for sinners. This meal is about our salvation. We observe this meal to remember how God saves us. And I think it's important to recognize that no matter where you land in the debate, at the end of the day, whether you're Eastern Orthodox, whether you're Roman Catholic, whether you're Protestant, whether you're whatever, if you're a Christian and you practice this ritual... All of us are agreed on what it's there to communicate. That Christ died for us. And so that's how we ought to approach the text this morning. That's how we're going to proceed. We're going to spend most of our time just talking about the Last Supper. And then only after we've done that will we look at the Lord's Supper. We have to consider the Last Supper before we consider the Lord's Supper. So let's start at verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. So there's two things we we'll need to notice about the Last Supper. First, we have to notice what the Last Supper was. We have to notice what the Last Supper was. So Jesus' death took place during the week of Passover. In fact, his actual death took place on the day of Passover. Uh, Passover was was sort of part of of like an eight-day unit where there was the day of Passover followed by the seven days of unleavened bread, the Feast of, of Unleavened Bread. And both of these... Holid, uh, holidays were, were there or holy days I should say were, were there to commemorate the same thing the exodus so it was they 're both there to to remember this moment where God saved his people so the israelites god 's chosen nation, they had been an oppressed immig- immigrant group in egypt uh, they were enslaved for many, many years, and God intervened into the events of of history in this remarkable way, this enormous sort of like Reversal of power, just toppling the the control of Egypt through through multiple plagues, all of it culminating in, in in one final act of judgment. So, and it was all to liberate Israel out of out of this bondage. So, what Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were there for was to to commemorate this this, this act of salvation. So, there are two parts to what God did for the the Israelites. So, first, God's Liberation was going to come through judgment. So he was going to bring this, this terrible judgment on the nation of Egypt in the form of, of killing the firstborns of, of everybody in the country. And so the Spirit of God was about to sweep through and, and lay waste, I mean, slay an individual in each household. And obviously the Israelites are in the country too. And so there's a problem there. How are they going to avoid this? And so God has them do something to avoid the judgment that's about to come on the entire nation. And it is grisly, but very powerful. What they were instructed to do was to slay a lamb, and to to bleed it out, and then to take a a brush of some kind and paint their doorposts with the blood of the animal. And that blood would mark them out. So as the Spirit of God was was coming through the the nation and, and killing members of each household... The households that were marked by the blood would be spared, and the Lord would pass over the house, right? So that's where the name comes from, the Passover. God would pass over the house. Any house identified with the blood of the lamb would not suffer judgment. And the reason why, the, the, the image that, that's so important here is that the reason why they are not going to suffer the judgment of God is because the lamb already had so the death that should have come to that household, the lamb absorbed that death instead. The lamb stands in for that member of the household. So you can see how sobering and meaningful that moment would have been to, to see this living animal and to slay it by your own hands and, and to, to like watch this innocent thing die for you. That's what the Passover was all about. Now, there's another part to this, and this is where the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread came from. The, the escape from Egypt was going to happen immediately. God, God instructs Moses, like, hey, this is about to happen, like, now. So you guys need to get food for yourself because you're going into the wilderness, and you're not going to have time to wait for any bread to rise. So don't even bother with the yeast. Just make something you can consume on the go. And so they all bake bake bread with no yeast, right? So they're not going to wait for the yeast to rise overnight or whatever because this isn't just leisurely hobby bread making. This is like, we need to leave now. So they all make unleavened bread. And so the way that you would celebrate this event going forward is that you would have the the Passover day, which would have a a meal of lamb. You'd eat a lamb. And then you'd have seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread where you would eat the unleavened bread again and, and remember. And so that's what it was all about, you know. They eventually the the, the two separate holidays they, they sort of became almost interchangeable. So folks would refer to the whole eight day thing as Passover, or the whole eight day thing as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's what we see here in the text. So it says on the first day of Unleavened Bread, it's the Passover. It's talking about the Passover. So God's people were instructed to to observe this feast every year, and it served a really important function. So. Here's the actual passage, or one, one of the actual passages in the Torah that, that instructs them on how to practice the, the, the feast. I want to jump to that last phrase where it, where it explains exactly why they're going to do this. It says you're going to practice this feast, the Passover and the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that all the days of your life you may remember. That all the days of your life you may remember The day when you came out of the land of Egypt. And so, this is what I want us to take away from this. The Passover was put in place as a reminder of salvation. The Passover was put in place as a reminder of salvation. It was a reminder of what God did to make Israel who they were. It was a reminder of what it was that that made them into a people, that gave them an identity It was a reminder of of what God did to save them. The Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, these were salvation meals. Salvation meals. So that's the background. That's what the Last Supper is. Jesus and his disciples, they're going to observe that meal. They're going to observe the salvation meal. And so to, to really get the full force of what Jesus is doing, there's something we need to notice so in this series, we've seen how Jesus, for a long time in his ministry, he's, he's sort of been really measured about, like, how much conflict he creates. So early on the, the Gospel of Matthew, you, rem- you may remember he kind of had this, like, like engage-withdrawal kind of habit where he'd be sort of ducking and weaving from, you know, from conflict occasionally. Uh, in the Gospel of Mark, we even have moments where Jesus is sort of being shush-shush about, um, about his identity as Messiah, all that changes on the week of Passover, as, as we've seen. So we saw the triumphal entry. We've seen the clearing of the temple. I mean, he's announcing judgment on the nation. He's engaging the religious leaders. I mean, it's been just this all-out uh, brawl between them and Jesus this whole week. He's, he's brought so much attention onto himself. So he's, he's trying to provoke something. And, and really, it becomes clear that he's try, he's, he's now... You know, the, the time for hiddenness is over. He is making himself known as the countercultural Messiah that he is. And he's doing it full bore so that he will be killed by the end of the week. It's a calculated thing. Like, he, he's, he's disclosing himself in really provocative ways because he knows he needs to die by the end of the week. So he is inviting onto himself all the evil... All the the envy of the religious authorities, all the power of Rome, he's inviting all of that onto himself because he needs to die on Friday. He wants to die on Passover. And the reason why is because Passover is going to be the thing that explains his death. Jesus wants his disciples to associate his death with Passover. Passover. So he gathers the disciples together for this meal because Passover is the key to understanding his death. When, when the disciples see Jesus die, he wants them to think of the Passover. That's what the Last Supper was. It was a Passover meal, and it is Jesus explaining his death. Now here's the second thing that we have to notice. Not just what kind of meal the Passover was, not, not just what the Last Supper was, but when it was. When it was. This is, why, this is what I mean by this. Jesus has the disciples observe Passover on the wrong night. This is super interesting, and I'm going to have to get a little bit nerdy again. I'm so sorry. Second time in the sermon. So, a little bit nerdy, but it's, it's awesome. If we, so, so there's, there's this interesting thing. We, we consider a day to be a sunrise to sunrise. Okay? So, like, Thursday is the sunrise Of Thursday morning to you know, well I mean tell me we say it's midnight, but whatever. You know what I mean? That the the, sort of the day begins on on Friday morning, right? That's the sort of the beginning of the day. Up to that point, it's it's night or whatever. So that's kinda how we tell time. The Jews didn't do it that way, it was sundown to sundown for them. So a day was sundown to sundown. Jesus is having them observe the Passover, but Passover takes place as a Sabbath meal on Friday. Passover that year was going to take place on Friday. So the Passover has begun, but it's not the night you eat the Passover. It's the night before. All right, so is this making sense? Jesus has his disciples go and prepare the feast, but they're doing it Thursday. And they're going to eat it at night, which is the beginning of of the Passover, but not when you would normally eat it. You would normally eat it on Friday in the evening. Okay, is this making sense? Okay, so it's this interesting little detail Technically, the Passover starts at sundown on Thursday, but you normally eat the meal on the evening Friday. It's all, it's all the same day, though. So the disciples are getting everything ready Thursday afternoon. They're doing what you would normally do for the Passover, so most likely Thursday afternoon they're slaying a lamb. They're doing all that Thursday afternoon, but usually the slaying of the lamb would take place when? The afternoon of Friday. Why is this important? It's because Jesus knows he will be killed in the afternoon on Friday. So, if he's going to get the Passover in his disciples' heads for his death, he's got to do that the night before. And so, he's meeting the night before to do Passover because he wants them to be able to connect the dots. Why was it so important that this meal had to happen? Why does he re-explain the whole Passover meal in terms of his own death? Why does he want to be betrayed Thursday night? It's because he wants his death to take place while everyone else in the nation is slitting the throats of innocent lambs. He wants to die when they die. And it's because he is going to spare his people from the judgment of God, by his death. It's because he, he will bring his people together around a new identity by his death. He is going to stand in for his people by his death. He is going to liberate his people from sin by his death. He is going to accomplish the final and ultimate salvation by his death. Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus' death is our salvation. And this bread and this cup is about our salvation. And our salvation is not a liberation from the power of a human empire, though that part is coming, but instead it is liberation from the power of sin. Because by Jesus' death, sins are forgiven. To give us forgiveness. To make it so that sin will not have the final word. Rather, in Christ, what God says of us will have the final word. And What he says of us in the cross of Christ is that we are loved, saved, righteous. He calls us my people, my children. Not because of anything we've done, but only because of what Christ gives. God calls us forgiven. So that's why Jesus died. The bread of his body is about to be broken by fist, club, and lash for us. His veins will be opened by thorns, nail, and lance for us. Which is why throughout Christian history, we have often presented the elements by saying, the body of Christ given for you. The blood of Christ Shed for you. For you. To forgive. And so we, we as the church have been observing this meal, this Passover meal, this salvation meal. It's a meal to remember, to be confronted all over again with the stunning mercy of God. It's a meal to remember how God saves. Really, the the the, the Lord's Supper is about the gospel. And that's why week after week after week, we come together to hear the gospel proclaimed in word and proclaimed through symbol. It's why every third Sunday, we've started coming together for for a prolonged meal. where We we have a longer time of of explaining the, the, the Lord's Supper. We take the bread and the cup, and we hear the gospel proclaimed, and we eat together. Because by his death, God made us into a people, and because the table of God's grace is overflowing for us. And so we've got a room at the table, and, and every single week we take the Lord's Supper together. Alright, so that's part one of the sermon. The next part will be super short, but I'll, I'll speak directly to sort of the Lord's Supper now. What are we doing when we take the Lord's Supper? First, when we observe this meal, we look backwards. The first thing that we do when we observe the Lord's Supper is we look backwards. So Jesus says that the bread and the cup is his body and blood, and, and just, just to be blunt, there's nothing in the text that suggests he means this literally. There, there, just isn't. Elsewhere, he calls himself a door. He calls himself a shepherd, and we don't think that he ever worked as a shepherd. He calls the world a field. The word is doesn't mean literal meaning. You know, that's just not how how metaphor operates. Uh, and so, there's nothing anywhere in the scripture that would suggest sort of a priest presiding over the meal and. Transubstantiating the elements ex opere operato—that's totally foreign to the scriptures. So Aristotle is very useful in many ways. I'm not going to be anyone who bashes Aristotle, but he can't help us here. Instead, we we want to get at this. If we want to get at this meaning, we have to stay in the world of the text. So Jesus describes the cup as the blood of the covenant. That's that's the metaphor he wants us to operate with. So that's actually a quote. And it's a quote from this moment where God has, has rescued Israel out of Egypt, the, the Passover, the Exodus, all that has taken place, and now God's people have found themselves at the foot of this mountain, and God is about to make them his people. And the way he's going to do that is with a covenant. So basically what that means is that he's going to set the terms of their relationship. A covenant sort of describes the terms of a, of a relationship between a king and his subjects. So God is going to establish a covenant. He will be their God and they will be his people. And so after the, the words of the covenant have been spoken, Moses slays a lamb and takes its blood and flings it at the people as this like grisly, symbolic gesture of, of how this covenant has, has, has been brought about through, through blood, the slaying of, of one being in the place of another. And as he does it, Moses yells, The blood of the covenant. So what he's, what he's doing there is Moses is, is announcing that the covenant has now been put in place. So he's ratifying the covenant. He's, he's confirming that, like, yes, here's a visible sign that you are now God's people, the blood of the covenant. And he, he flings it at the people. So now all that's left is, you know, after, after the covenant is said, there's sort of this, this sign that it's really been put in place. The people have been covered by the blood. And Jesus says that this cup is the blood of the covenant. It is there to remind us of the new covenant, the new terms that God has set in place. We have become God's people. And if we have any doubts that God has really brought us into a new covenant, all we have to do is look to the cross of Christ. So that's what, what, part of what the Lord's Supper is there to do. It is there to help us look backwards to the blood that ratified this covenant, the blood that made us a new people. So when we observe this meal, we look backward. But also, when we observe this meal, we look forward. So Jesus, when he takes the cup, he, will, he says that, I will not drink of this cup again until I share it, until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So wine throughout the scriptures, it it often functions as this symbol like joy and plenty of of the Spirit. It cheers the heart. It's this image of sort of the goodness of creation, a blessing to humanity. And Jesus says that he's going to sort of fast from it. That Jesus is going to fast from the cup until the day when the Lord's kingdom comes at last. So he's going to fast until the kingdom comes. And so when we take this bread and this cup... What we're doing is we're reminding ourselves that at the end of all things, there is not loss. That at the end of all things, there is not defeat. The human story will not end in hopelessness and futility. The Bible describes the ending in terms of joy. Human history will end with wine overflowing. With joy overflowing. In fact, it it consistently describes sort of the the, the coming of God's kingdom as this giant wedding feast. It's literally called like the, the banquet of Messiah. Human history will culminate in God making all things new and drawing his people together from across time and across the globe to join him in a new world. The kingdom of heaven will marry the stuff of earth. And just like we have, over and over again, week after week, we will approach the table. And despite our moral poverty, despite having nothing to bring of our own strength, all of that will be behind us then. And we will claim the seats purchased for us out of the riches of God's mercy. And we will raise our glasses high just like we have week after week. And we will watch as Jesus, our Passover lamb, breaks his fast. We will watch him end his fast and take the cup again. And every time we observe this meal, we are looking forward to that day when our king and our Passover lamb We'll take the cup again with us. Let's pray. Lord, we do not deserve your grace. Lord, we thank you for your mercy in the cross of Christ. We thank you for giving us this meal to remember and to look forward. We thank you that our sins will not have the final word over us, but that through faith you will preserve us in your love. And that you will make all things new. We love you, Lord.
0: Amen.